In Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, there's this verse. And it's Jesus instructing the Apostle John to write on a scroll. And Jesus says to him to write on a scroll, there's going to be messages to the churches, there's going to be instructions, and there's going to be prophecy. Uh, that's probably the most famous thing that people know about the, the revelation that Jesus gives to John is all the prophecy about future things that will take place. But Jesus says to John, write these things on a scroll, and then he says, and send it to the seven churches. And there's a list of churches there. They're not the only churches that existed, but these are the seven churches uh, that Jesus instructs. And they are in order here, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And they are a mail route. So the reason that they are in the order that they are in is because that would have been the mail route starting with Ephesus at the port and the way that the mail went from city to city. These letters, this letter would have gone in that particular order to each of the churches. These seven churches that we're going to take a look at in this series, they, they were real churches, and they had real problems. Churches aren't perfect. People aren't perfect. It was true then. It's true today. There were uh, issues and problems uh, of these seven churches uh, with the people and with the churches themselves, and uh, we're going to take a look at some of those the reason we went to Turkey, if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, that's where these seven ancient cities are currently located in the modern country of, of Turkey. And it's a beautiful country. Uh, we really had a, a great time while we were there. But these ancient cities were the classroom for, for that week. So it was, it was an incredible experience. And so I'm going to take you on a tour of some of these ancient cities, these ancient ruins. I've got a lot of pictures that I think you're really going to enjoy. And here's what I'm hoping. Not only that you enjoy the pictures, but that you're going to benefit, that you're going to find some really helpful things that, that Jesus instructed John uh, on some things that will benefit us, that will challenge us. And I'm hoping that this series will bring a lot of that to life and take the things that they were challenged with, the, the the shortcomings that they experienced in their faith, and we'll be able to apply it in our own lives to, to look and see, well, what are the problems that we might have in our faith, in our church? What are the shortcomings that we may have? And uh, what are the solutions to those problems? Here's the simple truth. As we work through chapter 2 and 3 together over the next, it'll be nine weeks because I'm going on vacation and somewhere in there, and, and I have to be out at conference. So it won't just be seven weeks. It'll be a, a span of, of nine weeks. But what I'm hoping you'll walk away with every single week is this one simple truth. Whatever problems we face, whatever shortcomings we may struggle with, whether it's personally or as a church, whatever the problem is, whatever the shortcoming, Jesus is the solution. That's what I hope you walk away with every, every week that we're together as we talk through these churches. Whatever the problem you're facing, whatever the shortcoming you struggle with, Jesus is is the solution. We're going to start in Ephesus chapter 2 of Revelation. Would you grab your Bible and join me there in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1 is where we're going to start. Now, there's some language in verse 1 that is, uh, I'll, I'll call it a word picture, and I'll explain what I mean here. Write this, this is Jesus instructing the Apostle John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Some word pictures there. The angel, not a literal like angelic being from heaven in Ephesus. Angel means messenger. He's referring to the pastors, to the elders, right? This message, this letter to the pastors, the elders of the church of Ephesus. And some things you might find interesting, John, the Apostle John, was one of those pastors. Uh, Timothy was one of those pastors. Tychicus was one of those pastors, one of those elders in Ephesus. In fact, John was in Ephesus when he was arrested by Emperor Domitian and exiled to the island of Patmos, which is where he received this revelation from Jesus. So I think that's pretty interesting. This phrase, one who holds the seven stars, that is a direct reference to, uh, in in the Roman Empire, uh, those seven stars, that would have been a symbol of deity. We're going to look at this a little bit later in in the sermon series, or the sermon later today. Uh, Emperor worship, the emperors uh, demanded to be worshipped as God, and this is Jesus saying, no, no, the emperor is not God. This image of Jesus holding the seven stars is is Jesus saying, no, no, I'm God. Jesus is saying He is Lord. He's the one who holds the seven stars. He's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. They represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. So you put all of that together, and we see this picture of the Lord Jesus holding these seven cities in in His hands. Chapter 2, verse 2. This is what Jesus instructs John to write to the leaders, the elders, the pastors of the church of Ephesus. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You You have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But... This is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. You know who He's talking about? That's us. We have ears to hear. And this wasn't written just specifically, originally it is, to this church for their purposes, a message from Jesus to them. But then Jesus says uh, we need to listen in on this message as well. We can benefit. We can be challenged from this message as well. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Some things that we learn about the church in Ephesus, these followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus, these Christians worked really hard. They lived out their faith. They were good servants of God. Faithful servants of God. They they did not compromise their doctrine. They did not compromise their purity. 
They had a passion for the truth. They did the right thing even when it was the hard thing. In fact, one of the examples that Jesus gives is that they rejected the teachings of the followers of Nicholas. It's an interesting story, the background of that. Nicholas was originally made a deacon. He was, he was uh, appointed as a deacon in Acts chapter 5. So a leader in the church. And apparently, uh, he, he turns out to be kind of a toad. He, he turns out to be a, a false believer, and he begins to pull people away from, lead people away from the truth. And he began to teach people that unrestrained sexual perversion is not only okay, that it's a good thing. That sexual purity was not necessary. He, he taught people that the body and the, and the spirit, they're not connected. So whatever you do with your body doesn't matter. As long as your heart is good, as long as your heart's in the right place, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Does that message sound familiar? And that was being taught by someone who was in the church leadership. But not in Ephesus. These believers said, no, that's not truth, that's not right, and they rejected that. So all of these things that Jesus is talking about, this is, this is good stuff, right? This is a solid church. The problem, though, that Jesus identifies in, in this church is that they had lost their, he calls it, first love, their first love for Jesus. They were doing all the right things. Their what, you know, what they were doing, their what was spot on. They had that down pat. But their why, their motive for doing the things they were doing had drifted. Their why had become this, this cold, mechanical, kind of going through the motions, phoning it in kind of faith. They love truth. They, they love serving God. Somehow they had lost their love for Jesus. And that's kind of scary. Can I just be honest? I read that. It's, it's kind of unsettling. Jesus is saying it is possible to work for him, but not be in love with him. Wow, that's, that's kind of scary. In fact, it raises all kinds of questions in my mind. I don't know uh, hearing that if that raises questions with you, but I, I read that and I think to myself... How then am I supposed to measure my love for Jesus? If doing the right things and serving God are not the measuring sticks for my love for Jesus, then what is? Well, it can't be my emotions, because emotions are fickle, and love itself is not emotionally based. That's not, uh, that's not what real love is. You know, when you, you first meet, you know, when Angie and I first met each other, and you have that that Twitter-pated kind of feeling, and you get that emotional high when you're together, and the electric spark when you, when you touch hands. That's all, that's all real stuff that happens, but real love matures beyond all of that emotional kind of stuff. You can't live on an emotional high. That's not realistic. So to say that we can measure our love for Jesus based on how we 
feel. I don't know that that's a, a good measuring stick either. So what is a good measuring stick for my love for Jesus? What does that even mean to love Jesus? And, and how, if, I, if, I can't, if I can figure out how to measure that, to know if I really am loving Jesus and not just loving working for Him, well, how do I know if that drift is happening? And if it does happen, if I recognize, like I, I've fallen in love with ministry, I've fallen in love uh, with, with doing the work for Jesus, but I don't necessarily love Him, if, the, if I recognize that's happening to my heart, that that drift is taking place, how do I correct it? How do I correct that love loss? All of these questions come to mind when I read this. And I think these questions matter. I think they're important questions for us to wrestle with and to ask. Because what does Jesus say to them? He says, if you don't fix this, if you don't repent and fix this, Jesus says, I'm going to remove my blessing from your church. And I think it's such an important truth for us to grapple with here at Grace Fellowship, because there's a lot of exciting things happening in our ministry. We've been growing, and that's exciting. We're in a building project, and that's exciting. We have to always remember, though, that Jesus is the one who is blessing our church. All the stuff that we're excited about, Jesus is doing that. And so not only do we have to make sure that we continually give Him the glory for what's happening here, we have to make sure that we don't in some way fall in love with a new building, fall in love with, with exciting ministry more than we love Him. Nothing wrong with being exciting about our project. Nothing wrong with being exciting about the growth that we're seeing and all the, the, the neat things that are happening in ministry. It's good to be excited about that, but we can't fall in love with that more than we love Jesus. And I know that's probably not shocking to hear. That sounds probably pretty basic in your theological understanding. But, boy, it's, just because we understand it doesn't mean it's not easy to drift. I think it's so easy, if we're not careful, if we're, if we're not reminded of this from time to time, it is so easy for us to drift and let our what, the things that we do, to let our what become our why. It's easy to forget that our love for Jesus is why we obey. Our love for Jesus is why we serve. Our love for Jesus is why we do the things that we do for him. We don't obey Jesus and serve Jesus so that he'll love us more, so that he'll bless us more. He already loves us. You think about this. The, the church in Ephesus, they obey Jesus. Faithfully, when it was hard. They served Jesus faithfully. And, and they, were, they, were, uh, they were committed to the truth when that wasn't easy to do. And yet it says here that they were in danger of losing the blessing of Jesus because they lacked love for Jesus. That's kind of scary. And it's not that that love for Jesus is somehow disconnected from things like obedience and service. They're not disconnected. They're not separated from one another. Check this out. 
uh, the Apostle John in his gospel wrote this in John 13. Go back there with me, please, to John chapter 13. There is a connection in these things of love for God, love for Jesus, and the things that we, that we do, our what's. John 13, if you go to verse 34, Jesus says this, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not even... Uh, well, read this part. Love each other just as I have loved you. That's not a surface level love, is it? If the standard is loving each other the way Jesus loves us, that's not a, a surface level handshake kind of love. You know, where we just, how are you? Fine. How are you? How was your week? And that's as far as our relationship goes. That, that's not what this is. The command is love each other as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will, watch, watch this, will prove to the world that you're my disciples. There's a connection to being a follower of Jesus, to loving Jesus, and our relationships as believers, our love for one another. Chapter 14, verse 15, if Jesus again, if you love me, obey my commandments, obey my commands. Well, that's a pretty direct connection between obedience to Jesus and love for Jesus, right? First John, go to first John chapter four. Now, this is a little bit longer section, but I, I think it's worth taking time to read. Look at verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is the gospel message. The gospel is rooted in in love. Verse 10, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. There's a standard of love that, that uh, we are commanded to have for one another, and it's the love of Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is, is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us His Spirit as proof that we live in Him and He in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfectly. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. There's a connection to following Jesus, living for Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, and our love for one another. Such love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced His perfect love. We love each other because He loved us 
first. If someone says, I love God, but hates, his, hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? He has given us this command. He repeats it. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. And one more, 2 John, you just go turn over a page here, verses 5 and 6. I'm writing to you to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. It's not a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means, ready? How do we define love and what does it mean to love Jesus? What's it mean to love God? What's it mean to love each other? Love means doing what God has commanded us. And what's he commanded us? Love one another. You see how it's, it's connected. Obedience and serving God and serving others and loving one another, they're, they're all connected back to what it means to love Jesus. Our love for Jesus is expressed in our love for others. It's why we love each other, because we love Jesus. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Obedience, why do we obey God? What's the reason for that? Why do we serve God? What's the reason that we do that? Why do we do it? Because we love Him. We just have to make sure that our what, what we're doing, doesn't become our why. Let's see if I can illustrate it this way. A long time ago, early on in our marriage, Angie and I read this book called The Five Love Languages. It's been around a long time. Many of you probably have read The Five Love Languages. If you've never read it before... The basic premise is that love is more than feelings. Love is action, and therefore it must be communicated intentionally. And you communicate love intentionally through various various things like words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, giving and receiving of gifts, and quality time. Those are the five love languages that are identified in that book of ways that we intentionally communicate love and express love. And after reading that book, uh, I discovered, it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me, I discovered that my wife's love language is acts of service. And that was new for me. I I had never really thought through what that meant. See, I can buy my wife flowers, and I can hold her hand, and I can tell her how pretty she is, and she doesn't hate those things. But she feels most loved by me when I make the bed. And that doesn't make sense to me, but that's how she feels that I've communicated love to her. Or when I help uh, clean out the dishwasher, or when I take the laundry basket from the from upstairs down to the basement in the laundry room. And so this was a new way of thinking, and for, for me, I thought, okay, I don't get this, but I'm going to try this. And so I, I started doing those things, not because I think it, uh, that, that making the bed in the morning and situating the 42 pillows in just the right way is a fun experience, it's not, that's not the motive for that, but rather to express love to my wife, to let her know that I care about her and that, that I appreciate her. Now, I want you to imagine that long time ago, you know, I figured this out and I started doing that and that was my why. And uh, that, that made a real difference in, in our marriage, and it, it really did. 
But I want you to imagine along the way, along the many years, this year we think will be 24 years for us. So imagine somewhere along the way those, uh, those chores that I'm doing that, uh, that I began to like how they make me feel. That I, that I begin to like the satisfaction of making the bed and the 42 pillows in just the right place. And I begin to learn to enjoy cleaning out the dishwasher and find enjoyment in that. And that I, you know, I feel big and strong when I carry two baskets stacked on each other from the upstairs down to the basement. Imagine somewhere along the way that I forget my why. And I no longer do those things because uh, I'm motivated to demonstrate or express love for my wife. Rather, I'm taking pride in what a great husband I am. And how fast I can make the bed. I can get those 42 pillows in just the right place in 30 seconds. Amazing. Imagine if the service, these acts of service, become about me and no longer about loving my wife. And that's the drift that we have to guard our hearts against when it comes to our love for Jesus. Because it can happen. It can happen easier than you think. And I want to take you on a tour of Ephesus now. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy the pictures. I think you're going to be, number one, impressed by when we, when we kind of lay out some of the things that they experienced in their city. You're going to be impressed by the dedication, their faithfulness as believers. But I also think as we unfold their story in this city, that, uh, that it'll help us have an honest heart check. Because if it could happen to them, it can for sure happen to us. These Christians were committed to purity and good doctrine. And if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. So here we go. Ephesus. These pictures on your right, on my left, they are, the, uh, they are pictures of the Aegean Sea today. Uh, we stayed in, in a hotel overlooking that sea port. Uh, Ephesus was a port city, a very thriving, important wealthy, uh, politically connected port city. Uh, the problem that they had right now, that ancient city is about several miles in from where this is. They had this problem with silt, and so the silt would keep coming in, and they had to constantly, they had to constantly dredge out the silt. And that's very expensive to do. And as the city declined over time in wealth, uh, it was no longer financially feasible to be able to do that. And so the silt built up. Now there's so much silt in there that the port or the, the, the harbor, the, the, the sea is miles away from where the ancient city is located. And, uh, and there's actually an airstrip. Uh, there's so much silt and so flat uh, that they actually have an airstrip uh, where, the port used to, where the port used to be. But this is what the, it would have imagined a port city. That would, this would what it would be look uh, in the mountain in the background. Imagine a city that would overlook something like this. Ephesus is where the best spices 
from around the world would come into Ephesus, into that port, and then they would go throughout the Roman Empire. They were a center, a big center for textile. And on this side, uh, still today, Turkish rugs are made by hand. And on these looms, they are very expensive. They're obviously very beautiful, but they're very expensive. That rug would take that woman one year to make. So you can, un- you can understand why they are so expensive, but that, that is still happening today. And so you can imagine back in the ancient times, this place of beautiful textiles and, sh- and, and shipping of spices coming into the city. Uh, it's the beginning there of the, uh, of the mail route. All the up-and-coming rulers and politicians lived there. If you go to the, the next set of pictures, it had a beautiful library, which is down here in this picture. That particular library was uh, a gift to the city. Imagine some of the wealth that existed at the time. It was a gift from uh, a guy. His dad died, and he wanted to give something, uh, something built in honor of his dad. Why not a library, right? And uh, go back one more for me, please. So the, the library is down here. Oh, they had some really fun public latrines, which is right here. So I want you to imagine how enjoyable that experience would be, uh, sitting there, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine, yeah, have a, have a good day, right? Uh, not a lot of privacy in the public latrine. Uh, in the upper picture, that is a 24,000 seat theater. It is incredible. I have like a panoramic view so you can see most of it there, but it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's it's the theater that we see show up in Acts chapter 19. Some of you may be familiar with that story. Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus, and it takes hold uh, so profoundly in that city that the sales of idols of Artemis, the sales plummet to the point where the silversmiths and those who are making these idols take notice. They're losing tons of money. And they are ticked off about it. And one of the silversmiths goes and makes this complaint. And there's a riot that starts uh, in the city. And they flood into the theater. That's, that's this theater. And you're reading chapter 19 of Acts. That's a pretty cool story. The Temple of Artemis. You know, these little idols. The Temple of Artemis. And that's what this picture is. These are the things that are still remaining from it. But it was the centerpiece as far as the most, uh, the most beautiful thing that you could find in that city. It was the main attraction in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These are the only things that are still standing. Uh, but you can see even from this picture of the gentleman who is standing beneath that one pillar just how enormous uh, this structure was. It was built in the 6th century B.C. It took 120 years to complete, every May, every May, there was a big parade. It was called the, the Artemis Parade. Artemis was the, the goddess of love, the god, goddess of fertility. And unrestrained sex was a way to honor the goddess Artemis. And that's what the Artemis Parade was all about. I think timing-wise, think about our country. Right now, our country, throughout the month of June, is celebrating homosexuality, right? Our country, throughout the month of June, is celebrating sexual perversion. 
And there's pride parades, and there's all these types of things that are happening uh, throughout our country. I don't want you to necessarily imagine this, but the, the, imagine a pride parade on steroids. It was, it was pretty gross. That's the Artemis parade. And the thing that, that is important for us to understand is that everyone was expected to participate. If you lived in Ephesus, you were expected to participate, to be part of the Artemis parade. Imagine, some of you who've lived in the cove for a while, you know this. And if you've moved into the cove from outside, you definitely know this. We have a parade in Martinsburg, the Ag Parade. A billion tractors, I don't know where they all come from, and fire trucks. and I mean, it's like six hours long of the same exact thing, right? And, but people go to it. Like, you, you set your lawn chair up three days ahead of time to get your spot for the Martinsburg Ag Parade. And those of you who, who live in this area or who have moved in, you know this. If, if, if you don't come to the Martinsburg Ag Parade, someone's going to ask you, especially if you live in Martinsburg. If, you don't, if you're not at the Martinsburg Ag Parade and you're a Martinsburg resident, someone's going to confront you. Were you at the parade? Did you enjoy the parade? Oh, I didn't go. What? You didn't go? Are you a communist? Do you hate our town? What is wrong with you? Right? Am I exaggerating? Those of you who live here, right? I'm not exaggerating. This is, this is the cultural impact of the Martinsburg Ag Parade. And that's what it was like in, in Ephesus. Are you going to the Artemis Parade? There's going to be lots of fun orgies and sexual deviants. It's going to be great. And the Christian has to make a decision. Oh, uh, I don't know. We, we, I have to check my calendar. I might be busy, right? We'll come back to that. The other thing that you need to know about Ephesus is at the time that this letter was written, emperor worship was the law. Now, today in our culture, celebrity worship is a real thing. People worship celebrities and YouTube people, and they worship them by choice. That's weird. But it was the law in the Roman Empire to worship the emperor. Emperor Domitian declared himself to be God. He demanded to be worshipped. He demanded that his feet be kissed. And every year, the head of the household was expected, by law, to go to the Domitian temple and put a pinch of incense into the burning altar and declare that Caesar is Lord. To say, you could either say Caesar is Lord or you could say, Hail Caesar is God. Those are your two options as you put the pinch of incense into the burning altar. And that phrase, Caesar is Lord, was plastered everywhere throughout the city. It was etched into stone. The other thing you need to know about these ancient cities, and this is true of all of them, that pagan temples like the Artemis Temple, like the Domitian Temple, these, these pagan temples throughout these cities, they were also the banks. And so the way the system worked... Uh, if you had a, a job, you had to be part of a union. And that union did all of the banking at the pagan temple. 
And so if you tick off the union, if you tick off, tick off the, the pagan temple in some way, you could be cut off from your job. You could be cut off from your paycheck. The whole city, the whole system is pagan and evil and perverted. You can still see the remnants of evil in the city today. I'll give you a second. Still there. Oh, I'm, I'm almost kidding about that. So you can go to the next picture. Go, go ahead. Go to the next picture. There, there really is still remnants of evil in this city. This picture over here, it's in the ground or in the, in the street. Okay? This is still, this, this would have been the way it looked uh, back in, in, uh, in Ephesus when, when John wrote this letter. This is how you know where to stand for your prostitute. You know how you have a bus stop sign? You know where to go for the bus stop? Well, this, and they would have different ones. So whatever you were looking for, right, if you wanted a certain particular type of girl or boy, this, these are the kinds of things that you would see throughout the city, stand here, and then wouldn't be long, and, and then that prostitute would come and find you. That's how you knew where to stand. This is, an, this is a city where that was normal. That was, that was a part of everyday life. That was just how the culture was. And this is the environment in which Christians were living. I want you to imagine living in this city. I try to imagine, you know, I had these friends that I met on this trip from Seattle or even Portland. How difficult that would be to, to uh, have a church ministry or gospel ministry in cities like that where people are just so far away from, from God and antagonistic towards anything that would have to do with Jesus. As a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and we know this to be true, a follower of Jesus believes that only Jesus is Lord. Isn't that what we believe? Only Jesus is Lord. And you're being told the law says you have to put a pinch of incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. Well, there's a tension there. There's a challenge there on what you're going to do with that. Because it's not like uh, if you don't do it, then you, people will just think you're weird. That's part of it. That's part of the pressure. But you could go to jail. Lose your life. In a city that has has uh, standards for sex that don't exist. In fact, they celebrate perversion of sex. And you, as a, as a follower of Jesus, know that God does have a standard for sex, and it's very simple. Sex is to be enjoyed only within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. It's a simple standard. But that's not the standard of the city. And now you've got some decisions that you have to make. If you don't participate in the Artemis parade, your neighbors are going to notice and they're going to want to know why. At best, they're going to think you're weird. At worst, they're going to see you as a traitor and want nothing to do with you. If you don't participate in the pinch of incense and the declaration that Caesar is Lord, you could be labeled a traitor of the state, lose your property, be cut off from your business, 
put in jail, tortured, killed, exiled like John was? And so the question, if you imagine putting yourself into that situation, what would you do? And I'll, I'll say it this way, in our modern context, I'll, say, I'll ask the question this way, how much are you willing to compromise? How much are you willing to compromise? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I can attend the parade, the Artemis parade, you know, as long as I don't you know, have sex with a bunch of people, maybe I could just go and, and, and be an observer so no one gets mad at me. Maybe, maybe I could throw a little bit of incense uh, in, into the burning altar, and, and I'll say the Caesar thing, but I won't mean it. I won't mean it in my heart. I'll know in my heart that, that Jesus is Lord. Those are real questions that they had to work through. Are we willing to accept, and I'm saying they were, are we, are we willing to accept in our modern context, the consequences of saying, no, Jesus is Lord, he has standards, and I'm going to live by them. And I'll accept the consequences of whatever comes on the other side of that. Are we willing to say that? Those are real-life decisions that the believers in Ephesus faced. And we go back to Revelation 2, and we see that Jesus commended them for doing the hard things and for not compromising, for refusing to participate in the wickedness and the perversion of their city. And now I want you to imagine that you are this committed to truth, you are this committed to purity, you are this committed to solid doctrine, that you are willing to sacrifice your comfort, your popularity, your favor with your neighbors, you're willing to be put in jail. You're willing to lose your job. You're willing, perhaps, to be, uh, be killed rather than compromise godly standards. You're willing to do these things. You love God, uh, and, and, and you love uh, serving Him. You love obeying Him. But imagine somewhere along the way, you forgot why you were doing these things in the first place. Somewhere along the way, your why is no longer, I'm doing these things because I love Jesus. That's what happened to them. And I think that's really scary. Because if it could happen to believers in Ephesus who sacrificed so much for their faith, I know it could happen in our hearts. I know it could happen in our church today. So how do, we, how do we guard against that? How do we prevent that? And, and if it's happened to us, if it's, if it's happened to us either individually or as a church, how would we fix it? How would we make sure that our love for Jesus stays or returns to our motivating why? To make sure that our love for Jesus is first priority that we, yes, we obey God, yes, we serve God, yes, we serve others, but we do it because we love Jesus. How do we make sure of that? Well, Jesus gives three things to do. And I'm just going to go down through them very quickly, and we'll finish up. Jesus gives three things that we can do. Number one, he says, remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And that particular word 
means to keep on remembering. It's not just, oh yeah, I forgot. It's a, it's a continual remembering, keep on remembering, which means we don't have to wait until we've forgotten. We don't have to wait until we've lost our first love. But if that happens, if, if a drifting of love has happened in our hearts, Jesus says, remember what we've lost in the sense that we desire to regain that close relationship. Remembering, oh, the, the why I'm doing this matters. And then to keep on remembering that day after day after day, to never forget why we're doing these things that we're doing. Whether it's serving God, whether it's loving each other and, and serving each other, whether it's being obedient and faithful, um, whether it's uh, sticking to the truth when, when that's hard to do. All of those things that are why never changes. It's because we love Jesus. So remember, and then Jesus said, repent. Repent is this remorse that, that wants to change, that works towards change. It's a change of the mind, yes. It's a, it's a confession of sin, yes, but it is a prayer for change. And change is hard. We, we all know that. Change is hard. And we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. If you think that you can just change everything that needs to change in your life on your own, you're a fool. We can't. That's, that's, why, that's why the Lord gave us the Holy Spirit, because we need Him to do all of the spiritual transformation that needs to happen in our minds, in our hearts, in our motives. We need the Holy Spirit, and we have access to the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did for us, our faith in Him, and, and through prayer and surrender and dependence on Him, real change can happen in our lives. But here's the, here's the bottom line with that one. We have to want change. We have to want something more than just going through the motions. If you are satisfied to just go through the religious activity of a Sunday morning, you don't want more than that, the pretty pretty big red flag that we've no longer that we're no longer in love with Jesus we're just satisfied we're, we we like the the routine perhaps or whatever it is that we we like about the Sunday morning experience we need more than that we want to we we want the holy spirit to just give us this greater love for Jesus that he's the reason why we do the things that we do repent remember Jesus said, repeat. Repeat the things they used to do. What, what are the things? This is not a trick question. What are the things that, that we can do to strengthen and deepen our relationship with Jesus? Well, prayer, Bible reading, and not just you know, reading a, a few verses or a chapter and so we can check it off the list quick and get it on with the rest of our day. Reading the Word of God uh, with reflection and with, with a prayerful spirit, asking the Lord to reveal to us what He wants us to know or what He wants us uh, to hear from Him, where we're not measuring up or what promises He wants to encourage us with. That type of Bible reading will draw our hearts towards Jesus, serving and obeying with a motivating spirit, with a motivating attitude of, I'm doing these things because I love Jesus. 
I want to ask you to go back to that illustration with my wife and I. Do you think, do you think my wife could tell if my love for her was drifting? I mean, kind of put aside women intuition, which is a real thing. But do you think, do you think that she could tell if my love for her was drifting? And, and even if I was still doing all the stuff, still making the bed, still cleaning out the dishwasher, still stacking up three baskets of laundry down to the... But I'm still doing all the stuff. I'm telling you, I am absolutely confident my wife could tell if my love for her was drifting. Why? Because you can tell. You can tell when love is drifting, when interest is drifting. My wife, you can ask her, maybe, I don't think I'm wrong, but I'm pretty confident my wife wants more than a house servant. Ask her. Pretty sure the answer you're going to get is yes, she wants more than a house servant. She wants someone who loves her and wants to spend time with her so that she feels appreciated and cared for and loved, yes, through these acts of service, but only if those acts of service are genuinely done because I love her, not because I'm trying to manipulate her, trying to get something out of her, but because I love her, and I want her to know that I love her. Do you see the difference? She wants more than a house servant, I promise you. So does Jesus. Yes, Jesus wants us to be obedient. Yes, Jesus wants us to serve him and others. But not just so he has a bunch of dutiful uh, people running around doing good things. Because he loves us and he wants us to love him. I want to finish with a heart check. Just have a couple questions, three questions. And you're only going to get out of this whatever it is that you put into it. So try to be as honest as you can with yourself. Number one, is your heart far from God? Is your heart far from God? Jesus is the solution to that problem. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrificial payment to appease God's wrath against our sin. And he rose from the dead three days later, proving his victory over sin and over death. Proving that he can and will make us right with God. He will transform our lives if we put our faith and trust in Him alone. Not just to give us eternal life, but to be our Lord. Jesus is Lord. If our hearts are far from God, Jesus is the solution to that problem. Second question. If you are a follower of Jesus, my question, and it's, it's direct, have you been compromising truth? If you are a follower of Jesus, have you been living outside of God's boundaries? If your heart has drifted into places that you know it shouldn't be, you know what the Bible reveals about God's standards, but you've chosen to ignore it or rationalize it or make excuses, or maybe, maybe you just don't have the courage to do the right thing because you're afraid of what people might say or what the reaction might be. And you feel the weight of that because the Holy Spirit is pressing on your heart and you feel the weight of guilt from that. Then Jesus is the solution. Coming back to Jesus is the solution. Repentance and, and doing the right things, even if it's not easy, even if it costs you something, come back to Jesus. That's the solution. Third question. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
if you've been working for Jesus. But as we've talked this morning, you, you would say, I'm not fully confident that, yeah, I'm working for Jesus, I'm doing the right things, but I'm not fully confident that my why is love for Jesus. If your heart has forgotten its why, then Jesus is the solution. Spending time with Jesus is the solution to that. Yes, repentance and remembering your why you're obeying God, why you're serving God, why you're serving others, but returning back to this this motive of love for Jesus and doing those things to express love towards Him. Spending time in in prayer, spending time reading your Bible because because you want to spend time with Him, because you're interested in building that relationship with Him. Spending time with Jesus is the solution to that problem. And I'll say this, we live in, in, a, in a time period when there are so many resources available to us when it comes to daily time. We call them devotions, but that daily quiet time alone with Jesus. We have daily breads back there in the connection corner, and they're, they're fine. Uh, you can order all kinds of devotional material on Amazon or CBD. Right now, I had one that was given to me that I love. It's written by David Jeremiah, and just a daily reading. There's a verse, and there's a thought that goes with it, and some time to pray. It's really, really good. There's tons of amazing materials available. version. if you have a smartphone, you are carrying around thousands of devotionals in your pocket at all times that you have access to on version on the app. And we have uh, advertisements for version all over the church on any particular thing that you might be interested in when it comes to your spiritual walk. The resources are almost unlimited. But you've got to make the effort to spend time with Jesus. It's not for lack of resources. It might be lack of interest. It may be because you've chosen to do other things instead. But it's not because it's not available. So the solution to that is spend time with Jesus. We're going to finish with this one, one thought. You ready? Whatever problem you're facing, whatever shortcomings you might be struggling with, who's the solution? Jesus is the solution. 